National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. An Alabama Supreme Court decision that established the personhood of frozen human embryos has set off a national debate over in vitro fertilization, commonly called IVF. The Catholic Church has long condemned IVF, the IVF process, and the production and destruction of embryos. To shed light on Catholic teaching on in vitro fertilization, we are joined by Bishop Earl Fernandez of Columbus, Ohio. Then we turn to Ukraine in light of the second anniversary of the Russian invasion. EWTN News reporter Colm Flynn recently returned from Ukraine. He gives us a special report. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and I'm your host here on Register Radio, joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. So this Alabama Supreme Court ruling, it was an 8-to-1 ruling that the wrongful death of a minor act applies to all children, born and unborn, and that includes human embryos, uh, regardless of their location inside of their mother or frozen uh, uh, on hold. (laughs) So this case has implications across the U.S. I mean, IVF is a a billion-dollar industry, and it's largely unregulated. Uh, Some estimates say that there are about one million frozen embryos in the U.S. alone. So this case has has really uh, lit up the internet. It's it's lit up national debate. It's revealed divides in the pro life community. Community, sadly, uh, over IVF, and and it shows not only disagreements between, let's say, the Catholic Church who opposes it, and the Protestant churches that largely support it, but it's shown that Catholics are, are also divided, and and many Catholics uh, either don't understand the issue. Uh, or have have decided to disregard it in pursuit of a family through IVF. And so we have invited a special guest today, uh, Bishop Earl Fernandez, uh, to shed light on this teaching and to show the ways the Catholic Church does help couples uh, who are facing infertility, walking with them and pointing to to other means uh, of potential uh, uh, starting a family. Matthew, you know uh, the bishop, so I'm going to let you do the honor of introducing uh, Bishop Earl Fernandez. Well, it's my privilege, uh, Your Excellency. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're most welcome. For those who may not be that familiar with you, you are the the bishop of the Diocese of Columbus. You've been in that position since uh, 2022. You were previously a pastor at a a parish in Cincinnati. You were a member of the staff at the Apostolic Nunciature here in Washington, D.C., where I'm based, and you're also Dean of the Athenaeum of Ohio Mount St. Mary's Seminary of the West in Cincinnati. But uh, bishops are always teachers. That's part of your office, the the Munis Docendi. But you have a particular strength in teaching on this subject. Uh, You have a doctorate in moral theology from the Alfonsianum in Rome, and you've taught this at the seminary. A a lot of our listeners will be very curious, what led you to study moral theology in the first place? Well, I had been in medical school. I have three of my four brothers are physicians. My father was a physician. Two of my sister-in-laws were physicians. I myself had been in medical school uh, with an undergraduate degree also in biology. And so I always had this kind of interest uh, my whole life long. And then uh, Archbishop Larch was the Archbishop of Cincinnati who sent me for further studies in 2004. So I earned a license and doctorate in moral theology at the Alfonsianum in Rome, then came back and taught eight year, for eight years. I taught medical ethics. Uh, at the seminary in Cincinnati. And then more recently, I just uh, maybe back in November, I gave a, 
a talk on beginning of life issues, including these artificial reproductive technologies for the Pontifical North American College. So I have an expertise and a background in medical and bioethics. Yeah, so let's uh, turn then to this skirmish uh, of in vitro fertilization. Uh, first, uh, why is the Church opposed to IVF? Well, we, the Church understands that many couples struggle with infertility, and so the Church is not opposed to helping couples to conceive children and to raise a family, right? Even Pope Pius XII, as early as 1949, spoke about recourse to artificial means directed toward facilitating the natural act or toward bringing about helping the natural act complete in the normal fashion to reach its natural end. In this sense, we could speak of assisted procreation. In 1978, Louise Brown was the first sort of test tube baby. Uh, but at that time, then, between 1978 and 1987, the Church was beginning its ethical reflection on this phenomenon of in vitro fertilization. In 1987, there was an instruction called Donum Vitae. And again, in 2008, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith issued another instruction called Dignitas Personae. Uh, so the Church is not opposed to helping people to conceive, but it's to facilitate the conjugal act, the marital act, between a husband and wife. Uh, so artificial techniques, though, that substitute for, rather than facilitate the natural act, are not permitted because they actually substitute for the parents in this human act. Right? The, the act itself is not judged by its end result, people want to conceive a baby, but by the nature of the act. It's contrary uh, to the child's right uh, to be born into the world in and through marriage, like children have a right to be born from a loving act of their parents. Having said all of that, then, there's also the issue of the embryo. The church, it's scientific fact that human life begins with fertilization. Right? And all the genetic material necessary for the person to develop is there present at the moment of fertilization. Uh, a whole sequence of events then unfolds. Um, but in Dignitas Personae, the Church teaches that the, the embryo ought to be treated as a person, with the dignity right. of the person, not to be experimented on for some future research, not to be used as an object to fulfill the parent's desires. Right? We need to be seeking the go ultimate good uh, of the person. And therefore, Absolutely. the Church is opposed to these types of uh, in vitro fertilization procedures, which also, um, we can speak of two types, heterologous procedures and homologous procedures. Homologous procedures are those in which the gametes, the sperm and the egg, are taken from a married couple. Heterologous procedures are when um, the gametes are taken from people who are not spouses. And so uh, this is also a violation of the unity of marriage and the fact that people have a right to become father or mother only through each other. And so uh, these are the reasons why, in addition to the fact that in in vitro fertilization procedures, there is a loss of embryonic life. Uh, that is, not every IVF procedure is, is successful. Many times, many embryos are sacrificed before one can actually implant, or sometimes the physicians uh, implanting and, and the technicians implanting the embryos will implant multiple embryos and then say, well, uh, multiple pregnancies are very risky, therefore we need to engage in embryo reduction, which we hear embryo reduction, we should think abortion. It's exactly. a willful destruction of innocent human life. 
So, Bishop, I want to I want to jump in here because it's uh, it's the the destruction of of human life is is seems so evident <laughs> um, when you listen to the fact that these embryos, some are implanted, some survive the pregnancy, and some are just discarded. Um, and that is is very similar to abortion. And yet, uh, there, as I mentioned in the introduction, this has divided the the pro life community. In fact, Senator uh, uh, Tim Scott said that this is um, you know a pro life uh, aspect that like we should be supporting. Pro being pro life is being pro IVF. Well, the church doesn't say that at all, and many pro lifers also don't say that. So, what? How do you respond to something like that? Well, I would respond first of all. He did, probably doesn't understand the church's teaching on the unity of uh, uh, the unitive and procreative meanings of the sex conjugal act. Right? He probably also doesn't understand. Uh, that people have a right to become, or accept, that people have a right to become father or mother only through other. What he is responding to is people's desire to have a child when they struggle and struggle to have a child. In that sense, the Church wants to be pro-family, but by helping couples to uh, have a child in a natural manner, through techniques such as NAPRO technology, by treating underlying illnesses, by facilitating uh, that the that the conjugal act reaches, and for example, by positioning the egg in a more uh, in a more favorable position to be fertilized by the sperm, uh, those types of techniques are certainly permitted because they don't substitute for the marital act. What he's saying is he wants people who are struggling to have children to be able to have children, and that that's a good thing. He perhaps is thinking, well, the, you have these frozen embryos in a cryogenic state. Uh, and therefore, we ought to rescue them. Some Catholic moral theologians, embryo adoption, embryo rescue, this is a kind of a, a debated point. Right. Uh, but, but most of the time, what people are doing is they're saying, we adults should be able to fulfill our desires. We want to have a child. The market allows us to have the child. Let's have a child, and we can have the child we always wanted. Um, so I think this is where there's a divide, because there's not a, a, a unity in the understanding of the marital act, or the right to become father or mother by each other, but also because people don't, when they think of the, the embryo, the fetus, the zygote, they use this type of language, we should think person. Right. Persons cannot simply willy-nilly be sacrificed, even for a good end. The ends never justify the means in Catholic moral theology. Um, and people cannot, and, and to say I'm willing to undergo in vitro fertilization is to say I'm willing to sacrifice a number of embryos that I might have a child, but to sacrifice an embryo is to say I'm willing to sacrifice a certain number of persons. Now, most people don't think about it that way, but we have to use language to expose the reality of what is actually happening. Absolutely, and so I'm. I'm so grateful that you've um, come on our show to to shed light on what the Catholic Church teaching is, even going into that scientific scientific aspect of what is happening um, in in vitro. So I'm very grateful, grateful Bishop um, Fernandez, for being on the show today and and for shedding light. And we'll continue to try to lift this up for our audience so they can better understand. Uh, that being uh, against in vitro is actually a pro-life move, and it's a very important move for understanding the human person. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. You know, and, and the church is there for couples who struggle with infertility. I know I had, when I was a parish priest and when I was the dean of the seminary, many couples would come to me, and I would counsel them. I would explain the church teaching, but I said, look, 
I would, and they would sometimes be wanting me, because I was a younger priest, to give them an answer saying, yeah, go ahead, with a wink and a nod. <laughs> but I said, I wouldn't really truly be a spiritual father to you. And, you know, I pray for those people, I fast for those people, I make pilgrimages to shrines, and I encourage them to do so. But also I refer them to physicians who are experts in fertility, who can help, help them with hormonal therapy, help them uh, with other underlying illnesses. Many of them have never heard of things like NAPRO technology right. uh, to, to help infertile couples. And so they immediately go for IVF, which is uh, very expensive and not always successful and, and morally problematic, instead of beginning to explore other options that are consistent with the Church's teaching on the human person, on the dignity of marriage, on the unity of marriage, and those techniques which don't substitute for the Marriage Act, but rather help the Marriage Act to achieve its natural end. Absolutely, and, and I'm grateful for that accompaniment and, um, and, and for the prayers. I think we all need to join in prayers for those who are facing infertility and are, are facing decisions like this. So, again, thank you so much. When we come back, EWTN News reporter Colm Flynn gives us insights into the lives of Ukrainians two years into war on their soil. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Sacrifice is a profound virtue Catholics can lovingly embrace, especially during Lent. But this year, why not also indulge in something good for your soul? Give yourself the gift of EWTN's National Catholic Register and stay connected to the latest developments and historical traditions of our Catholic faith. Save half off your subscription today. Get the National Catholic Register delivered to your home, office, or parish. Filled with spiritual insights on world events, along with compelling Catholic news and information. To get 50% off your subscription, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. It's the one indulgence you won't ever want to give up. Call or click today to save half off. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen. Last weekend marked two years since Russia launched an invasion into Ukraine. The war has killed or wounded as many as 500,000 troops. President Vladimir Zelensky has said millions could be killed, millions, um, in this war with Russia if lawmakers don't approve requested aid. And, and Congress right now is divided over a $6 billion aid package uh, for Kiev. So we're in a time still of crisis um, between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and Russia continues to advance. That's, it's a pretty serious situation there this week, uh, even as we are speaking. And our colleague, EWTN News reporter Colm Flynn, was on the ground in Ukraine earlier this month. He had a special report that aired last weekend, last Friday, February 23rd, on EWTN News In Depth, and that can be found on uh, at uh, EWTN or uh, on our 
web, YouTube page. If you if you search EWTN News in Depth Ukraine, you can you can find uh, that that video. But Colm joins us now to help give us a sense of what it was like to be on the ground. Colm, it's so good to have you. Hey, Jeanette and Matthew, thank you so much for having me on, and it's great to talk to you. So the toll of this war uh, on the Ukrainian people was very evident in your special report. And, and you have been to Ukraine three times since this war started. Uh, so this time, you the, I don't know if you named it or if the producers named it, but it was uh, called the, the Psychological State of Ukraine. That was the, the segment. And I, I was just really struck by that title for one. And um, why did you come up with, with that name? Yeah, we thought when we were planning to go back and mark the two-year anniversary of the invasion, what would we focus on? Because being there before, we had focused on Easter in Ukraine. We had focused on Christmas in Ukraine, how the people were holding up. And so this time we decided, well, look, we know that the homes that have been destroyed are still destroyed. The towns that have been decimated, they're still in rubble. But what about the people? Two years on, you know, at the start... They're very afraid, yes, but you have this kind of enthusiasm for victory and um, a surety almost that victory would come quickly, that the Russians would surrender or be beaten. So when that hasn't happened in so long, coupled with all the graveyards that you saw in that report, the new graves all over the country of these young men, and then seeing your neighbors or your brother or your friends coming back with missing limbs, what does this do to... uh, the psychology of the the whole uh, country so uh, we looked at yeah how people were coping uh, and spiritually as well that was a big emphasis in the report how are they holding up spiritually right. and ironically we didn't plan this but the week we were there uh, we filmed them during ash wednesday in the capital kiev in saint nicholas's church and to see them being reminded ashes to ashes dust to dust it was very um, it was moving it was powerful Yes, it was very impacting, as you as you mentioned, the graves, and it it was wow, just to see these kind of makeshift graves, um, and and what a what a heaviness really that 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 brings. Uh, I was impacted by by just that sight and the devastation of all the flats and, and apartment buildings and whatnot that you that you had in those videos. Um, I know that you yourself experienced some of the anxiety of of war this time there. Uh, you had a, a little scare. It, it, it turned out to be pretty mild compared to what others feel. But what happened? Yeah, and actually, and just to, to go back on one thing you mentioned as well, the, the graveyards, uh, the thing about them was when you look at the graves, these makeshift graves, as you said, and they're digging fresh ones next to it at the same time for the more anticipated men that are coming. But they have photographs on the graves. And when you look at the photographs, you just think, oh, boy, they're so young. The guys you see, the faces looking back at you, they just look so young, like they've just come out of high school or something. So the, the tragedy is hard to comprehend, and it's hard to even get across in video or through the um through our TV report. But our our little kind of dose of reality or reality bites was because you can forget from time to time that you're in a country at war because you're maybe having a lunch break with the crew or you're going around certain places like in Lviv and the West. And for the the most part, life is going on uh, as usual, as normal in the places that aren't directly controlled or the fighting is happening with the Russians. 
But it was when we were in Kiev, the capital, staying in our hotel, that at 4.47 a.m., in the middle of the night, we were jolted awake by this big announcement in the hotel telling the residents to go straight to the shelter. It was something like, take cover immediately, go to the shelter. And it was this kind of robotic voice on repeat. And then I opened the window and you could hear the air raid siren, something that I thought was, you know, that you'd only hear during World War II or something, in the, right. like I just knew from the movies. But to hear that sound for real, that horn, the air horn echoing across the city, and uh, then the the repeating notice from the hotel. So we ran down, we spent three hours in the bomb shelter, and then our companions and colleagues from the Order of Malta, they messaged me in the middle of the night and said, missiles are on the way to Kiev. They, it's been reported in the news. So stay down in your shelter, don't go back up to the hotel. And then those missiles were intercepted by their um, anti-missile defense. Um, I think it's called the Patriot system. So, but the next day you're just on, you're tired, you're exhausted because you haven't slept, you're on edge, you're jumpy if you hear a noise. So I thought, wow, they've been experiencing this for two years. Right. And it's just what that does to you psychologically, I just don't know. So we know that this is the impact that this has on the civilian population. It sounds eerily similar to what the, the English or the British went through during World War II. So what do they do in Ukraine at this point to draw hope? How are they getting through this? Yeah, Matthew, you're right. You know, I grew up hearing stories of the Blitz and things like that. And you just, uh, you know, the jets, uh, the planes going overhead, dropping. You just can't imagine what that's like, the fighting, the fear coming from the sky. Um, but what they're doing for hope, it's hard. They're pinning their hope on winning this. But how they're going to do that now, they just do not know. When I went there two years ago, they were saying, oh, the, you know, people are going to give us arms and we will have more tanks and they're bad fighters and they're not trained well and the Russians are this and that. Now they're not talking like that as much. When I asked them in an exhausted way, they kind of shrugged their shoulders. And then some uh, Ukrainian military guys I spoke to, young guys, they were saying, well, there's kind of a thought among a lot of us that maybe we should just give the land that's been occupied over to Russia because they're not going anywhere. So you can see that it's kind of shifting the thinking. But what I was surprised at, Matthew, was that spiritually, I was kind of feeling a bit awkward about going in and, you know, starting to talk to them about faith and their belief in God, especially if you're talking to a woman who's lost her children and lost her husband. But I was surprised, not one person we met going to these various different cities in the country, not one person told us they had lost their faith in God. In fact, the opposite, one Russian soldier, a young guy and a 24-year-old who was captured by, sorry, one Ukrainian soldier who was captured and held in a Russian prison, told me he prayed every night and that's what got him through. This woman whose husband was killed and her uh, one of her children as well said that she prays still now during the air raids. And um, Ash Wednesday, the church was full as well. The people, it's kind of reaffirming their faith and belief in God in some way, which I found extraordinary. I found the same thing. I mean, one of the, the soldiers you spoke to who lost a limb, who lost a leg, he, he, he recounts how he felt in that moment. I mean, and he, he talks about, he knew immediately he lost that leg, um, but he had the thought that if I'm still here, if I just survived a direct attack and all I lost was my leg, then uh, God is with me, right? And God has a yeah, plan he, for me. And I just was blown away by that. The, 
that was the direct quote. God still has a plan for me. Now, can you imagine it? And this guy was uh, younger than me. And I think of maybe it's my vanity or whatever. If you lost a leg, how could you go on? Or <laughs> No, but, but this guy, he got out of the trench and he tried to stand and he fell and he looked down and he realized that this mine had just blown his leg completely off. But as he said in that interview, I knew that if I had survived, even though I was missing a leg now, that God still has a plan for me. I mean, that's it's, incredible. It, it really is. So, Colm, you know, I mean, you're, you go, go throughout the world and you're reporting um, these vivid images of, of, of situations, um, sometimes very intense, sometimes lighter. This one's obviously intense. What would you hope that the audience draws from your reporting in this? What should we know about this situation in Ukraine as we begin to close this? That's a good question. I think with the beauty of doing this report on EWTN News in depth, if you look at it, we have more time. We had, I think it was 20 minutes was the full report online. Whereas when you watch the mainstream news, particularly in the US, everything is much snappier and they're going through what the politicians are saying on each side and them. But but we were able to get into the, the, the reality for so many ordinary people. So I think if people watch it, they can just see how real the situation is for so many people, just like you and I, brothers, sisters, mams, dads, boyfriends, girlfriends. It's a horrific situation. And it just has to end as soon as possible. But how that's going to happen, I don't know. Right. It requires a tremendous amount of prayer because uh, the political circumstances around this are, are not looking very good, nor... <laughs> nor does the Ukraine defenses look very good at this moment. They, you know, last I looked, they were in retreat. Um, and that's got to take, again, a different kind of psychological toll on these people. But Colm, you did a, a beautiful report covering children, uh, covering sisters in the church and how they're serving, uh, the women who've lost husbands, um, soldiers who have lost limbs and, and friends. And so... We do encourage our listeners, this is a heavy topic, but, but go and, and, and look up uh, this video. Go to EWTNnews.com and you will find the, the video there under the show EWTN News In Depth. Or you can find it on YouTube, uh, searching EWTN News In Depth Ukraine. So, Colm, thank you so much for being with us today. We look forward to more of your adventures. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, uh, Matthew, as well, for having me on. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. As always, thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. Together with Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I pray that until next week, God bless you.